matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. That would be myself, Dr. Peter Andrusacco, and my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. How are you today, Todd? Doing excellent. Doing really well today. And yourself? I'm, uh, I'd like to say, I'm going to say just at the weather. I don't want to say a little under the weather because I don't want to say that I'm actually there. Then I'm going to feel it and then make myself become that. So we're doing positive thinking here. Can you get sick through Skype? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't think I don't think you can. Okay, good. Once again, it's a power of suggestion. Yes, exactly. And uh, we have a an action packed show today, from what I see in the and uh, the prep work that you've done. Yeah, we've got a really good show, and folks. I can't believe this. This is actually the last week of November, <clears throat> and so with that, that means that it's a wrap to the. Uh, Bullying Awareness Month, which has been this month, November, which it has been a great thing, a great informative month. And just because the month is over in terms of bullying awareness does not mean bullying stops right there. So, folks, please continue to make a difference in whatever walk of life you're in when you see or witness or experience bullying yeah november is uh you know each month we try to have a theme and it's nice to put a theme uh you know of bullying in november and it's it'd be nice if we really didn't have to put a focus on it in november if it just disappeared but i don't think it will ever do that so we have to at least once a year touch base and and uh share some great information and some wonderful guests with the audience yeah folks and please keep the comments questions Ideas coming into us, you can always reach me at Peter Sacco on Facebook, uh, Peter Andrew Sacco Twitter, and definitely go to my website, uh, petersacco.com, and there's always free books, free giveaway stuff there, so definitely uh, check things out. And uh, as Todd was saying, we got some really good guests today. And who would those be? Are we going to tease people, or are we going to make them wait through the first break to find out who's on the show? I guess the, the first... I guess I'll ask you the question. So, Todd, were you a big Sesame Street fan growing up, or how about your kids? Sunny days. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just burned in my brain. I mean, you. it's funny. When that theme song happened, no matter what room I was in, it was like a, a siren call. I would just come racing into the room to watch that show. Yeah, and it's one of those shows that has just, I guess, stood the test of time. I wonder, can we say the same as, I don't know. Is Barney still around? No, I don't think they're doing. I mean, it's still in in reruns, but I don't think it's they're they're doing new episodes. I, I could be wrong, but Sesame Street is one of those shows that is timeless in many ways. They've they've managed to maintain a lot of their innocence and keeping it really innocent for kids. But as the world has gotten to be a scarier place with different challenges, Sesame Street, in my humble opinion, has done a really really good job of integrating those social issues into the the dialogue of the show and i don't know what your feeling is that is as a professional but as a layperson i think they've done a pretty good job of uh of talking and addressing some of those issues that we're talking about in life totally agreed i i think uh it, it yeah if you look at it it's 
the, one of the biggest arguments uh, some people have, especially um, professionals and some parents, is not treating kids as miniature adults and, you know, kind of teaching them to be kids. And I think that is what Sesame Street has, has totally done, um, where they're not miniature adults, where they're not forced to grow and mature fast, but rather be themselves, be kids, but in a very, how should we say, in an informative way, where they're learning life skills, but also educational skills. I, I always viewed it as basically school on television, a fun school. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, the world when I grew up was a less scary place. There were a lot fewer uh, things that I needed to concern myself as a about as a six-year-old. The world for a six-year-old or a five-year-old that is watching Sesame Street and even younger is a much different place. Families breaking up more often, different types of families coming together, uh, different types of challenges happening in the world that are affecting children. So in, in many ways, they are smaller adults, and Sesame Street has always never talked down to children and, and always treated them as, as people and not as just kids. And I think that's one of the good things that that program has always done. And now that they're starting to integrate some of the more delicate topics into the dialogue of the show, I think they're saying to kids, you know, we can't just stick our heads in the sand and ignore this. This stuff's not going to go away. Absolutely. And in fact, um, we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Jeanette Betancourt. Um, she is involved with uh, the wonderful Sesame Workshop, which deals with different... Um, Types of kids. Uh, kids, I believe she's going to talk about kids with autism and kids that, you know, in the past that have been put down, bullied, etc. And that's not all, folks. Actually, we're going to go from to the other extreme uh, later on this show today, um, which looks at a really uh, scary topic, which is bullying in domestic relationships, bullying in adults. And we're going to have Philippa Sklar, uh, the author of a very, very tremendous book, um, When Loving Him Hurts. And she's been on CNN. Uh, her testimony has been seen right across not only the, the North America, but across the world uh, as, you know, she's a, a women's uh, activist that's out there getting the message out there that abuse hurts and sometimes can kill. Yeah, and I um, have um, no personal experience in domestic violence, you know, that I perpetrate. I've been, like I've mentioned before, been uh, subject to it. But I do know many of my good friends and some women that I'm close to in my world have uh, have suffered. And, and that title, When Loving Him Hurts, is just, wow, um, that really encapsulates what, what it's about. You love someone so much, and yet they hurt you so badly. And you know what? Definitely, Todd. And I, I don't, the, the title is obviously from, you know, a female perspective, but anybody out there listening, it could be when loving her hurts. Yep. And it could be the other side of the coin where the female is the perpetrator of the abuse. Yes, absolutely. And that does happen. Let's not forget that. And as we've talked about with Alan, that there are many men that are victims of emotional and sexual and physical abuse. And, you know, it's, it's something that just keeps going on and on the cycle and we all need to break it. And then speaking of Ellen Campbell, um, hopefully, uh, God willing, she will be joining us at the end of the show to kind of be our, how should we say, the the last rock, the final stone, the skip of the crew. <laughs> Absolutely. Good analogy there. Good metaphor. So, 
<laughs> yeah, and I and they've got a lot of stuff that's going on leading up to the 13 days of Christmas uh, with their wonderful organization, the Center for Abuse Awareness, and they're involved with Q107, and hopefully she's going to start talking more about it. Because as I said, holy cow, next week is December. So how many days is it actually till Christmas today, Todd? Like literally four weeks? Uh, you got it. Yeah. What is it? 30 days or something? I'm good. I'm really good at math, but <laughs> yeah, today's the 25th. <laughs> so just think one month today is the 25th folks. And for those south of us on the American side that are our loyal listeners, thank you, or I should say, uh, wishing you guys all a happy gobble gobble day. Tomorrow is us Thanksgiving. So Hope you're eating and enjoying it. And then, what is Friday? Oh, yeah, Black Friday. Get out there and shop, folks. Yeah, I'm not going to do any of my shopping on Friday. I'm waiting until the 24th of December to start mine. It's always a challenge, you know? <laughs> I always wondered that, Todd. Do you think you get good deals on the 24th or worse deals because they basically got you by the throat thinking, oh, you're one of those last-minute ones. We ain't going to clear anything out. You want it? You're going to get it on Boxing Day. Could be a little of both, but, you know, I'm sure there's some prices that are a little higher because they know they've got you. And, and if, truth be told, if they don't sell it, they know Boxing Day sales are around the corner, so they can blow it out then. Yeah, actually, we can do all, just a, a whole fun show on the commercialism of holiday shopping, i.e. Christmas shopping. And uh, I'm sure we're going to be hopefully doing that before we wrap up for the season. And, by the way, folks, our I believe our last show for this year this season will be i think is it december 16th i believe so yeah so this year has come to a very fast um halt all of a sudden it seems it's going to end but 2016 is just around the corner and we're going to have tremendous guests coming into this new season excellent well we're going to take a short break and uh refill our coffee cups and and peruse our addictions like shopping because i tell you for someone with a shopping addiction this season coming up is probably a brutal one and as you said there's there's a show in there uh, the psychology of shopping let's call it something like that so, yeah that would actually be a really cool show to do what is it legally blonde yeah featuring our good friend joe pentaliano who had a shopping addiction and uh and we can piece in some of his interview that we did with him but for for people that love to shop this is the time to come so stay with us uh we'll be talking about that i'm sure in some weeks ahead but uh you're listening to matters of the mind on listen up talk radio at talk-radio.ca music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Hi there, I'm Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, 
and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting, Facebooking, or online dating? Maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week, folks. So you know what's mattering right now to me is sunny days sweeping the clouds away yeah. on my way to where the air is sweet and so with that said we are so absolutely thrilled and excited to have our wonderful guest as we teach you with dr jeanette Betancourt, and she is the senior vice president for u.s social impact on sesame workshop so directly uh connected to sesame street uh, dr Betancourt is a licensed bilingual speech and language pathologist and educational therapist with a specialty in treating families and children with psychiatric disorders and she has consulted at many hospitals right across uh, the United States and uh, she joins us now with her wonderful beautiful New York accent hello there <laughs> thank you so much and uh, it's such a nice rendition that you did of sunny days very good <laughs> <laughs> we, we can all do a, a, a sing-along there, uh, you, you know, <laughs> there <clears throat> so I, I guess how do you go from being a speech pathologist, uh, which, by the way, my younger sister is, to oh, Sesame Street? Yeah, to go all the way to Sesame Street. So tell us a little bit about your life story here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I had the advantage of becoming a speech and language pathologist. One, because I loved education and I particularly loved helping children who had delays and uh, I knew could excel in if they were motivated and again received therapeutic support but in a family context and uh, did that for a little while and then decided that I needed to open up my world a little bit and then ended up at Teachers College Columbia University and ended up um, doing some work around higher education and really love teaching and then suddenly a friend of mine um, indicated you know what they need a consultant at sesame street who can create some curriculum material is bilingual in english and in spanish and also has a little touch of knowledge of special education and i go well that sounds really interesting <laughs> <laughs> and hence i ended up at the workshop in, in really a wonderful area and that's to create what we call our community and family engagement or u.s social impact work which is all initiatives that are philanthropically developed and we create multiple media resources that go out and really help families on different topics and areas. So your work then is really outside of the, the media arm of the Sesame Workshop, then if I'm hearing you correctly. That's correct. It's, it's, it's separate from our programming because what we do is we tackle specific topics that impact families and often what we call vulnerable families 
And vulnerability doesn't mean just income. It mm. means social-emotional vulnerability. But where there's a unique combination that our wonderful Muppets can make a connection and talk about topics or issues with greater understanding and model ways to talk about it between grown-ups and little ones. Right. Now, when Dr. Sacco and I were talking before we got you on the air, um, we both agreed that one of the wonderful things that Sesame has done over the years is it's never talked down to children. It's treated them as equals. And this world is a much scarier place. I'm 50 years old, and I remember watching Sesame when I was younger, and it was it was just for the most part, pure escapism. It was just a wonderful place to go and belong and, and join a family if you didn't have one or have a, you know, learn about families and friendship and things like that. But one of the things that Sesame has done consistently over the years now is really start to weave social change and social issues into the fabric of the show and do it very successfully because you just can't bury your head in the sand and ignore that things are happening. Families are changing, the dynamics, the the relationships are changing. And it's really heartwarming to see that Sesame has really embraced those and, and brought them to the show. And it sounds like now, with you being involved, you're also bridging the gap to the real world with these very same topics. Absolutely. I think what you've touched on is with our programming we, we actually are now almost touching three generations where children who have grown up on Sesame Street when it was first started in 1969 are now parents themselves and sharing it with their children. But we also find grandparents and other caregivers are engaged with children around Sesame Street. And you're right, what our mission through Sesame Street is to help children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. So it's the whole child mm. bringing everything that touches their success and development. But we've, we've touched through our programming many, many specific topics. After 9-11, we did. We addressed the issue of bullying. We addressed uh, when Mr. Hooper died on, yes. on the show. And, and all really, as you indicated, in a way that doesn't talk down to children, but it helps them understand, but also engages the adults in their lives. But as a result of that, we also found from the very beginning that we just couldn't rely on our programming we also had to go across and directly into communities. So when Sesame Street first launched, it also launched with community engagement. It actually went out into communities and presented using television as an educational tool. And since then, we've taken that into addressing many topics that are really challenges for children. You know what, Janet? I just the way you put it actually gave me shivers because it's such an amazing thing that you guys are doing and what you have which is just amazing Todd and I were talking about it and we used Barney we threw it out there and says okay where's Barney today and none of us could recall but <laughs> it's, you guys have longevity and what it is it's a testimony to the ability to reach humanity uh, and changing generations at an extremely deep level. And up here in Canada, and I can say this up here because we are north of you, um, it is Bullying Awareness Month here for the month of November. And wow. let me ask you this, because bullying, the, the quality of it and the intensity of it and just how it has changed and evolved is so different than, say, when your show first started out. 
How do you deal with bullying issues today or bring that to the forefront of a show to try to make a difference, try to create some tremendous outreach to parents, not only parents, but the kids themselves watching, to deter them from being bullies? I think one of the things that we do and is the base, and I think as you're indicating, how do we continue to touch families and children? It's all based on our research model. We believe very strongly everything we do and we touch with our brand is based on research, whether it's a book or programming or our U.S. Um, social impact initiatives. We're very, very careful in looking how we design this. And when we addressed bullying, we did quite a bit of research gathering experts, going in and testing concepts and, and video and issues out there with children and families. And what we discovered is from a young child's point of view, meaning below the age of five, it's much more aggressive behaviors and ways that you look more at prevention rather than intervening. So we, we didn't say children are, are at this age are directly bullying, but rather what are behaviors that are driving at the basis better understanding of other children, of both their differences and what they share in common, but also what are the skills that underline understanding others and driving empathy. And that has a lot to do with uh, um, social emotional development, uh, executive function, self-regulation, these skills where you're looking at others and understanding different perspectives, but also handling feelings, big feelings and small feelings, and putting words to them. So we did it in a very developmental way. It, it sounds like... Um, uh I have a son who's autistic, and uh, one of his challenges, like a lot of autistic kids, um, social interactions, social graces, social norms are such a big stretch for these kids. And uh, he's attended many workshops where they actually get them to engage and work on these things. And it sounds very much like, uh, I want to ask you, is that what Sesame Workshop does when it's out in the community and when they're talking about the big feelings and the small feelings? Do you do you get the kids to work together to understand uh, and how to interact with each other and, and what's expected in a certain situation? That's, that's part of it, but you also brought up exactly how we design these initiatives very specifically to particular communities. So as you indicated, we just launched an initiative about autism. It's called Sesame Street and Autism, See Amazing in All Children. And it's intended not for diagnosis or the educational component that's needed for all children with autism, but rather to drive better understanding about autism and indicate not to judge children who are autistic based on their autism, but rather what they share in common and also what all children share in terms of being unique. So in this case, what we did was very, very carefully start looking at families who had autistic children, as well as what we call neurotypical children, children who do not have autism and are in the general community, and looking at their, both their understanding of autism, what do they have, what are sort of myths or stereotypes, and how could we drive better understanding. I think that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, it, it, what, what I find tremendous about this, Jeanette, is the fact that you're bringing mental health issues um, 
and mental health, uh, however you want to call them, abnormalities at an earlier age into, if you want to call it, into the media um, in a very gentle, in a very family-friendly way, which I believe removes a tremendous stigma. Is that the purpose of it? I couldn't put it better. It is to remove the stigma around autism, and we found that very openly in several ways. One, uh, here in the U.S., we know that children with autism are five times more likely to be bullied. Um, There's generally very often what crops up around autism are extremes, either there is um, things around violence and misunderstandings about autism and, and not the positive perspectives and, and really not judging a child or any individual by their needs or differences, but what they share in common. But we really found exactly what you said, there's lots of stigma. We often found that many families who had, did not have children with autism didn't know how to approach a family had a child with autism, or if they did, it was almost with a sense of sorrow. And then on the other side, from families of, who had children with autism, they said, that's, you know, we're just like any family. And we wanted to really represent that, really the positive nature, and also debunk the myths. And uh, as someone with a child with autism who has fairly mild autism, and we have an autism support group at a school where where the parents all get together and, and discuss just you know problem solving you know normal issues that we all go through. Um, it's it's wonderful to help get all the information out there. So, like you said, it sort of debunks the myth and uh, allows everyone to see what's in common. And one thing the group also does is make sure that the kids are integrating well into the greater society because some of their needs may be more pronounced or more severe and others less so, even so far as saying that, you know, some people go, oh, that child is autistic. Yes, they have certain issues that aren't visible. And like a lot of mental uh, challenges that a lot of people have, many of these things are not uh, so visible to the general community. I think that was exactly what we often found around autism. It is an, an invisible challenge. Um, and often because of that, there's a lack of mis- there's a misunderstanding on certain actions from children. And that's why we also created such a variety of representation of families in our videos. Uh, families who had children who were more impacted and nonverbal, others who had a more milder form of autism, again, to show the variation, but also the different ways of communication. We often say with autism that if you meet one child with autism, you've met one child with autism, <laughs> right? That's because it's, they're all so unique. But we really wanted to bring about also the perspective of children, and that's what we hope is being represented here. That is absolutely awesome. It's, um, and I think that's absolutely tremendous, Jeanette. And I think part of it is <clears throat> because so many times adults get pigeonholed into this stereotypical diagnosis when it comes to mental disorders. And the same holds true for kids. But I love the fact that you're actually looking at it in terms of a differential diagnosis based on the unique individuality of each kid. 
Yeah, and, and that's why we really we pondered and tested, you know, the exact title. And, and we love this title that really is Sesame Street and Autism, See Amazing in All Children, because we also didn't want to separate children with autism or autistic children from neurotypical children. If we wanted to say, you know, every child, in a sense, is quite unique and, and also has differences and similarities, and we wanted to stress that especially. We, we did, I think, what we also really uh, found is a desire to have a Muppet <laughs> represent autism, and hence we developed Julia, who is um, a character in our storybook. And she's not a live Muppet yet, but she is part of our storybook. And what it illustrates there is Julia is four years old and nonverbal, um, or very limitedly verbal, and uses assistive technology to communicate. And she meets, uh, she's friends with Elmo, but she meets a new friend, Abby Kadabi. And when they first meet, um, Abby wants to make friends with her and, and tries, and she noticed that she doesn't look at her or doesn't answer her. So at first, Abby thinks she doesn't want to be my friend. And Elmo and also Julia explain that, uh, that Julia has autism, but of course she wants to be her friend, but she just has different ways of communicating. She has different ways of playing. And in the end, they all start to play together, and they find things that they have in common. And we have found that that storybook, that character, is making such a difference because it's representing a very open way to talk about autism in an age-appropriate way, but also in a very positive way. Absolutely phenomenal. Our guest is Dr. Jeanette Bettencourt with Sesame Workshop. It, it's just flown by, Jeanette. We're going to definitely have you back in the new year. I hope uh, that you'll come back. Um, you're a tremendous guest, and what you're doing is absolutely mind-blowing, in my humble opinion. Oh, thank you so much, and we really appreciate being on. And um, if anybody wants to share this story, please have them share this story. It's the amazing. Hashtag the amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, just a wonderful interview. Stay tuned. More Matters of the Mind just around the corner worldwide at talk-radio.ca. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most 
most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. And folks, this is still a Bullying Awareness Month. And as I've harped, and you'll continually hear me harping about this, bullying affects all walks of life, irregardless of the age, gender, race, religion, and probably exists on other planets if there was life on other planets. So folks, whenever you have the chance to stop, intervene, or do anything when you see the abuse, the shaming or the bullying of another individual, please be a difference maker. And so with that said, we have another tremendous guest, absolutely excited to have her on, Philippa Sklar. And uh, she is co-author of When Loving Him Hurts, who describes the pain and shame she experienced in her relationships as she has been in three abusive marriages as well as her long road to healing. Hello there, Philippa. How are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. So, this is obviously a very difficult subject, a, a difficult experience, and in fact, we do a lot of uh, stuff with the Center for Abuse Awareness, and actually coming right on after you will be um, Ellen Campbell, who is the CEO and founder of it, and I know Ellen has talked about it quite a bit, and you know she's shared her own stories. With that said then, I over... How long was the abuse? You know, three marriages. So that's a lot of abuse going on. There, there, there absolutely was. And um, I had my first marriage was emotionally abusive, and that's one of the. That's what the book aims to do. Actually, is to redefine the um, preconceptions on abuse, because the majority of people think that domestic abuse is linked to violence, when most abuse takes place, and it's it's emotionally abusive. Um, and a lot of women can't even re- don't even recognise what those signs are. So my first has, my first marriage was emotionally abusive. My second marriage was physically abusive, and that was horrendous. I was in it for seven years, but um, five years before I married him, and two years of the marriage, and my third husband in America was emotionally abusive. And one of the things that the book does is helps women understand that they aren't. They aren't, you know, a lot of people think that women are just the passive victims who happen to be chosen. But the truth is that women choose these men as much as they choose us. 
and our pathology demands these kind of men in order to feel that we are in a love relationship. And until women can understand what their contribution is to the dance of abuse, they will just continue repeating the pattern, which my story exists as proof of that. Um, from what I understand, I've got several female friends that have been in in these types of relationships and after doing some intense soul searching and some psychotherapy they almost feel like there's some sort of um vibes that they're putting out that attracts these men that prey on women that that need that unbalance of power in a relationship to to exist what's your uh, feelings on that statement well as an abused woman i can speak from experience that most abused women are codependents, which means, of course, that we define love on being needed and that we only think we're in a love relationship if we're working like a slave to help a man. So we, our pathology demands a man who's damaged and needs fixing and saving. So, yes, it's not, that's why it's the dance of abuse, because it's not just the men happen, that just happen to choose these women. We are attracted to these men. We need these men as much as we think they need us. And that's what the initial attraction is. And we're groomed to understand that this is what a love relationship is from how we were taught growing up. We were, you know, we're groomed as codependents. We're groomed to, and especially, think of the fairy tales, for instance, that if you love the beast, he'll turn into the beauty. You kiss the frog and he'll turn into a prince. So unhealthy women go out believing that they need to win a man's approval um, in order to feel loved and in order to feel validated. And when women take on that victim mentality that we just happen to be chosen, it's very difficult for them then to, to heal. And, you know, we certainly don't blame women. Women are never, ever the problem, but they are the solution. Mm -hmm. And what this book does is that it provides skills and strategies for women to challenge what it is about them that they require these men in their life and what can they do to change it. You have a, an awesome quote, Philippa. I love it. And it goes like, it's like wanting to hug a shark. Yeah. Why on earth would anyone do that? Yeah. And working with abused women myself, and I've done it over many, many years, um, the same thing with abused kids, it, it is the truth. And sitting there, and I can say this, after being in this field for 20 years, I remember when I first started at Wet Behind the Ears, I would sit there and listen to a woman going, Yep, he's done this to me. Uh, much like, you know, you discussed, you know, where he's pulled your hair, spat in your face, and tried to choke you. And I used to be sitting there going, well, why are you staying? So the question I have for you since you've lived through it, you've endured, and then you've overcome, is what was your aha moment that says enough is enough? Um, well, can I just, I'll just back up a bit. What, you know, what you're saying is what so many people find unbelievably confusing and um, shameful, especially as an abused woman. How do you want the hands that beat you to comfort you? You look at that incident that happened with Ray Rice and Janae Rice, that after he beat her unconscious, she then publicly apologizes for her contribution in what happened. And people have that, you know, trot out that saying, well, first time as, um, a victim second time a volunteer but what people don't understand and especially abused women is that how on earth do you explain that to yourself because what happens is that in, in the incident with the with Janae Rice is that when abused women cover for the abuser 
it's what happens is that it becomes our little secret and we feel important and we're finally getting his acknowledgement and we think our love is so sacred and we don't stop to examine how unhealthy it is. So you ask me what finally got to me. You know, it took me a long time to believe I was an abused woman. I firstly arrogantly believed that, oh, abused women were uneducated and impoverished and I couldn't possibly be an abused woman. And my husband certainly couldn't be an abuser. He was far too rich, too affluent, too educated. He was a CEO of a company. He was a celebrity in South Africa. And, you know, abuse is the same as any addiction. It's a great leveler. It doesn't matter what your education is, what color your skin is. It affects everybody. Um, and finally, what happened, I, for, the, for the longest time, I blamed the abuse on him being an alcoholic and an addict. But one night he came home and he was stone cold sober and he beat me. And I finally had to accept I was an abused woman. But understand that being an abused woman, we're still holding out hope that he's going to change. That if I just work out the magic formula, I'm mm. going to transform him and he'll finally acknowledge how, how valuable I am and how sacred my love is. Um, and finally, the final straw was for me when he had me up against the wall and he was trying to choke me. And he bit my mouth and filled with blood and he tried to put his cigar out on my face. And I have absolutely no idea where I got the strength, but I managed to duck under his arm and run out the house. And I, in South Africa, we, had, um, we have private security companies that um, patrol the, um, the areas. And I managed to press the security button, and as I got to the electric, to the gates, the outside gates, the security car came up. I saw his headlights, and he was chasing me from the back. And he ran inside when he saw the security guard, and, you know, I came out. And I said, they had to call the police because it was, you know, a crime scene. And there I am with my shirt torn, with these welts around my neck, and I said to him, God, isn't it unusual to get these calls in suburbs like this? And he said to me, let me tell you, we get more calls in these areas than we do anywhere else. And that was a huge wake-up call for me. I want to go back to something you said, and you said that it was our little secret. Um, it, it sounds very much like you went through stages with the relationship. When you when you do that, that dance, that you need each other, and then I guess as you get stronger as a couple, in, in a funny way that you get um, more entangled, you start hiding more. As you said, it's a secret. You wanted to protect him. Is that another demonstration of what you thought was love for that person? Oh, definitely. I was showing how sacred my love was, that it was so special. And my um, our love was so special that in a way I thought... I was that I was this incredibly special person to him because I could provoke these feelings that he hit me because I could provoke that jealousy. And that had nothing to do with protecting him from any sort of legal ramifications. That was just sort of a, I love you this much that I want to give you the time to work this out. Absolutely. I didn't even get, when I, was, when I was in it, I didn't even think of the legal ramifications. My absolute obsession and concern was to continuously working to, sh to prove to him how valuable I was and how he should have me in his life. It was this obsession with need. When I talk about the pathology of, of um, codependence, you must understand, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I required a man that I could obsess about 24 hours a day. My day began 
where I would go and prepare breakfast for him in bed because only I could do it the way it was supposed to be done. And I timed it perfectly that the toast and the coffee were heated at the exact, at the correct temperature. And I would put it on a silver tray and take it, walk down the hallway and give it to him in bed. And I would butter his toast and he, I'd pass it to him. And he would say to him, mm-mm, it's not butter to the edges. Oh, I would take the toast back and I would make sure that every crumb was covered because only I could love like that. Mm. Now you can imagine if that, if my day started like that, can you imagine what the rest of the day was like. So when I say that women who are codependents, we require that craziness in order for us to, to survive. Right now, Felipe, you're working, I, I, I read this, with the nonprofit Act to End Violence Against Women in Toronto. Is that correct? Yes, and that is. Tell, can you tell us, uh, the listeners, uh, a bit about it, especially how women who are in the situation themselves can find help, find, you know, hope possibilities, new possibilities, and also individuals who want to get involved with this. Yes, well, it's an amazing organization, and what they do is they, they, um, they have a resource, a legal resource as well for women. Um, they counsel women. They help them through, you know, understanding what it is about being an abused woman. Um, I think that, you know, you can give out their telephone number, um, and they can contact them. Um, you know, there are, you know, so many women who are abused, you know, people think that shelters are an answer, but they aren't really. Um, you know, it doesn't, they don't really equip women with the skills and the tools to redefine their life because, you know, as an abused woman, you have to, your belief system is so whacked that you have to go back and redefine what it is, firstly, what your definition is of love. Um, you know, when you look at any... You, for instance, when I used to say, oh, but I love him, I can't leave him. How can I, you know, this is what love is. But if women have to define what love means to them, that love is something that's respectful, that's reliable, that's um, loyalty, that's about worthiness and being valued and um, feeling wonderful about yourself. And then you compare, what, you describe the love that you're receiving, and you can see there isn't, there isn't a single thing that, that, you know, that the one has to do with the other. So that's what this organization does as well, is that it helps women to, to heal themselves. What the book does as well is that it also has a whole um, section on healing, on giving the tools and strategies, and showing women how they can heal through creativity. And as someone who, who's witnessed um, an abusive relationship or witnessed it for a very long time, it's no longer a relationship anymore, I was always struck by the fact, as someone who was not knowledgeable and was always outside looking in, why don't you just leave them? And then, and then I kind of went, well, you know, there's kids involved, so, you know, they'd be without their dad. Uh, so maybe that's a good reason. And, you know, trying to figure it all out. But it really, like you said, it doesn't matter what the, the situation is. It's the, I need to fix this. I have the power to fix this. And I will make it work no matter what until that light, that aha moment or that light bulb goes off. Well, here it is. You know, women who are in physically abusive relationships have to leave. But women who are in emotionally abusive relationships have the choice. They can leave or they can stay, but they can't stay the same. So what this book does is to give the women skills and strategies in order for her to heal herself and to manage herself within that abusive relationship. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the only thing that we can do as women is to empower ourselves to live a life that 
that's, that's worthwhile. So one quick question before I throw it to Dr. Sacco. Does this book help someone? Like if, if, if I were a woman who were in a relationship and I, I was like you and I'd say, I'm not in an abusive relationship, does it, does it help that self-discovery to, to get you to the point where you realize that you maybe are? What, this, what we have in the book is something called the Buddhi Barometer, and it defines 16 check, checkpoints of what is an abusive relationship. You know, lots of women think they are in an abusive relationship, but they're actually just in a lousy relationship. Mm. And, you know, being in an abusive relationship is much like a disease. If you don't have the symptoms, you don't have the condition. So women need to mark 12 out of the 16 in order to qualify to be in an abusive relationship. That's good, good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we're almost out of time, Philippa, but I've got to just throw this out there because I kind of find it really, really interesting that you had an exclusive cooking school and catering company uh, back in the day in L.A. And you catered events for various dictators, including Nelson Mandela. And your first client in L.A. was Elizabeth Taylor. And then you also appeared on the Food Network blind party, dinner party with Margaret Cho and also... Guy's Grocery Games with Guy Fieri. Very cool. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it, I was astonished when Elizabeth Taylor was my first client. I was there for six months, and I was working in a hole-in-the-wall sandwich shop in Beverly Hills, and her head of security came in, and he ordered one of my salads. Um, and he called me over and he said, would you like to cater for Elizabeth Taylor's Oscar party? I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> so he put me in touch with um, her assistant and I did two of her Oscar dinners and her grandson's christening. Wow. Very cool. And I also taught cooking to women at Alexandra House in L.A. I'm a believer that, you know, nourishing the soul is as important as nourishing the stomach. That, that is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so, definitely, folks, get out there, get this book, When Loving Him Hurts. The author, co-author, is Philippa Sklar, along with Sue Hickey. It's a great book, definitely, and I totally endorse this. I am sure it will definitely change your life for the better. Thank you for joining us, Philippa. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, where can we get it in Canada? In Can We're in Canada, but I'm sure it's available in all the online stores. And it's, it's, yes, it's on Amazon. Okay, excellent. And hopefully Amazon uh, in the States as well for our U.S. Yes, listeners? Yes, absolutely. No, it is in the States. I'm actually American. I know I sound South African, but I'm American. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio Worldwide at talk-radio.ca. We'll be right back with more show right after this. Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. And now joining us uh, each week, our favorite guest, Ellen Campbell, who is the CEO and founder of the Center for Abuse Awareness. Hello, Ellen. Hello. Hi. So, Ellen, Todd, Good morning. And, I, Todd and I were talking about the fact that it is exactly to the day, <laughs> one month away from Christmas, the 25th. Wow. Wow. So, with that said, we want you to tell us and all the listeners how they can go about getting excited, involved with 13 Days of Christmas, the whole thing that you do with um, Derringer. 
Absolutely. Well, um, we have John Derringer does the 13 Days of Christmas starting December 1st. For 13 days, he goes on air and raises money for us. And this year, we're, we're focusing a lot on our Delivering Hope program, which is sponsored by FedEx, um, for um, items of furniture that, so for instance, you can sponsor a chair for $50 or a couch for 100 or any amount is appreciated. So we're, we're trying to focus on that because that's really the demand that's really been on us a lot. And of course, Christmas, we service about 2,000 families at Christmas. So certainly presents like gifts, we really appreciate actually gift cards because we get a lot of teenagers and they're really hard to buy for. And of course, cash is always welcome. So um, they can just go on abusehurts.ca and check it out or go on Q107 um, starting December 1st. And for 13 days, John, you know, really helps us a lot. He's raised a lot of money for us over the years. So is it like an auction or something that they do? Um, or well, just yeah. straight donations? Uh, both. We, we take donations, obviously, but then there's a lot, an online auction, and we have some amazing stuff, a lot of classic rock, you know, memorabilia, and every kind of thing you could imagine. And the auction is huge for us, and they really, really do promote the auction for us. I'm just so, looking at a Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr signed Beatles record album, a Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood signed guitar Wow, that's going to raise some money. Wow, you've been on the auction more than me. <laughs> I didn't know that was on there. Just, Elena takes care of it. <laughs> I just need the money to buy some of this so that I can oh, help you. Yeah, I know. No, we get some great stuff because of the, obviously, the radio station. Um, but the other thing, too, and I, it's interesting, uh, Peter, that you mentioned because it's a month away, and you would know this, and that's one thing I wanted to talk about quickly, is that we know a lot of people hate Christmas. This is not a happy time for a lot of people. I can remember going into a store and absolutely hating to hear Christmas music. It did not make me feel good at all. It actually really hurt. And so I just want to encourage people not, you know, I think the worst thing we can do is isolate ourselves. You know, if you're, if you're in AA, go to, go to a meeting or, you know, just be sure you have some things to do uh, through the season that will keep you, um, maybe your mind a little more off and not to be alone. I don't know if you want to add to that, Peter, but I know a lot of people at this time have a tough time. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, it is one of the loneliest seasons of the year. And unfortunately, there is a, a lot of attempted suicides and suicides. And I think, Ellen, you could shed light on the amount of abuse, how abuse rates go up, not to mention mm -hmm. the, drink, the drinking and drugging to numb it. So, and I remember yeah. um, each, each Christmas or after Christmas going into the new year, um, your your former great show, uh, Living Clean, Living Well, Teresa Cruz, we would be talking about this, and you'd have a lot of callers calling in and saying, man, I just dread this time of year. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can remember I did, and it, it's real. But I, I think definitely um, if people can not isolate, I would say that's the strongest thing. You know, obviously if your family, if it's not healthy for you to be with your family, go to an extended family or go help somebody. Like I, I used to find if I just got out on myself and went and, you know, helped at a soup kitchen or something, that really pulls you out of yourself a lot. I would say too, for, for families, you know, if you know someone's going to be alone for Christmas, you know, what's one extra plate at the Christmas table uh, or, or invite them over for Christmas Eve uh, festivities. I mean, it's really not a big deal to do that. And, um, and you're, you're helping someone out that's having a great time. Maybe they don't celebrate Christmas, but I'm sure they would really welcome the companionship. 
Absolutely. That's another good suggestion. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of the 12-step groups do have extra meetings going on for that very reason. Yeah, and it's all about hope. And, you know, Christmas season is a time of family, a time of friends, a time of, you know, having an attitude of gratitude and just being really happy. And it's all about, you know, non-commercialism. But I think, unfortunately, too many people get caught up in the mystique or the media's version of Christmas. And I think at the end of the day, Alan, Christmas is a time of love, which is loving yourself and enjoying the life that you have. Absolutely. And gratitude, as you said, Peter. I think, you know, when you get into that really bad place, it's really helps to look back and say, but these are all the things I can be grateful for. And it, it, it really, when you start to make a list, we we here, even though we we may be going through really difficult times, have a lot to be gratitude, you know, grateful for. Absolutely, and you know, for anybody out there listening and that stuff, just remember, there's somebody out there that could not be as happy as you, uh, not in a great place in their life. So. I think one of the greatest gifts you can give to anybody is your smile and your warmth and say a very big Merry Christmas to them and let them know that they're loved and they have a place in society. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So for Alan, anybody uh, listening, um, where can they find, uh, We can just you can tell them to find more information on Derringer's uh, auction, 13 Days of Christmas? Uh, well, you can go onto our website. As of December 1st, the auction is up and going. So it's abusehurts.ca. And um, and listen to John. He's been amazing over the years. Uh, they, As I said, they've raised millions of dollars and got us some really key corporate sponsors um, because of... And, and he genuinely cares um, for people that are hurting. He's been there. It's not a secret. He's been quite open about his dealing with alcohol and, and you know, his journey. So he's, he's really come on board. So I would encourage people to get on board. Obviously, donations are wonderful of any kind. Any kind. We appreciate it. That is awesome, folks. So definitely get involved. Ellen, thank you Perfect. so much for joining us again. And we'll oh, talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Goodbye. More Matters of the Mind around the corner. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, and that's our wrap, folks. Join us next week as we have another great guest. In fact, it's Tosca Reno, who is the New York Times best-selling author behind Your Best Body Now and the Eat Clean Diet series. She is a world-class certified nutritional therapy practitioner, and you're gonna love her. Especially with Christmas coming up, we need to eat well. So, <laughs> tune in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Listen Up Talk Radio, and catch the podcast the next day because you're gonna need that podcast on Christmas Day. Take care. We'll speak to you next week. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Get in touch with him on his website, petersacco.com, or find his contact page on Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at listenuptalk. Thanks for listening and sharing our posts. We'll catch you next week. All the